Before there were BFFs, Caitlin and Charlotte, there were the arguably more famous BFFs, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. In this episode, we'll look at the partnership of a lifetime between these two monumental filmmakers. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and we are here this week to talk all about the most famous BFFs that we know of. <laughs> I don't know if they're the most famous, they're but they're famous. like the most to famous us. in my world. To yeah. us. Aside from yeah. us, they're the most famous, <laughs> which is the relationship, the partnership, the friendship between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I am really excited to do this episode. It's one that I've actually wanted to do for a really long time. I love both of these filmmakers and look up to them. I felt like ever since we did our George Lucas series, Caitlin and I have kind of done these like sort of offshoots where we dive deeper into like one segment of George Lucas's life. And it felt only right that as we're on the cusp of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is produced by Steven Spielberg, but isn't directed. It's the only Indiana Jones movie that isn't directed by Steven Spielberg. As we're coming up on that, it felt right to do this deep dive into Stephen and George and their friendship and their relationship and their partnership in uh, collaboration and things like that. So it's really exciting. I had so much fun digging into this. I don't know about you, but it was so joy-filled. I don't know. <laughs> I loved this. Yeah, they are. They're quite a duo. And it's one of those like fun things I think about George Lucas's life that he has relationships that are long lasting. Like they've been friends for over 40 years now. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just something that kind of comes up a lot with George's life in George's life of like consistency, I guess you can say. Mm -hmm. And to maintain a friendship like theirs for, you know, 40 plus years, it's, it's so actually 50 years. It's like, so it's so impressive, you know? And I mean, we're, we're barely going on 15 and like, wow, <laughs> I'm impressed with us. So to think about us in our 70s, like, yeah, remember when? Yeah. I think it's interesting, and we're going to get into it, where George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have produced and created some of the most cherished Hollywood movies ever, right? But they do come from different camps in terms of understanding Hollywood, mm -hmm. at least sort of formally. I don't know if intellectually they do, and maybe that's the the reason why they have such a long-standing friendship, but I find it really interesting. I think we're going to go into some of that, but I really wanted to start with this quote <laughs> that I found, I think, in George Lucas, A Life by Giant Brian J. Jones, I think it is. Steven says this about George. He calls George Lucas, my valiant colleague, a great and loyal friend. And in response to that, George Lucas says about Steven Spielberg, my partner, my pal, my inspiration, my challenger. And I just, it's just so adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I think these two have worked together on so many projects that, like I said, are so beloved, but they are so also open, at least with the press, about how much each of them have cheered the other one on. And I think that's really cool. We're also recording this on June 8th, which happens to be that we did not plan this. I swear to God, <laughs> National Best Friends Day. So Caitlin, happy 
National Best Friends Day, but also happy National Best Friends Day to Stephen and George. Yeah. Happy National Best Friends Day to us and, and to George and Stephen. Yes. <laughs> we do have this in common with these we grades. Do, <laughs> I like how we just, the prologue started with like, oh, we're on their level. We are so <laughs> I wrote the prologue and I, was, it, I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, here's what the prologue's going to say <laughs> before just us. Just say that in jest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that goes without saying, but yeah. Yeah, I was like, it comes across. This, this is the cheeky prologue that I'm going to write this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when I woke up and saw that and I knew that we were recording today after writing this episode, um, I was like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know you said that to me uh, sometime today. And I was like, no, no way. Because we, we plan to record this like a, a couple days ago last week or something, we set this date up to record this episode. And anyway, just it just means it's good energy around the episode. So I'm excited. I hope you guys like it. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about these two. Yeah. So why don't we jump into it? So in part one, we're going to be talking about the friendship beginnings. And in part two, we're going to be talking about their collaborations. And in part three, we're going to be talking about the later years, more like the 2000s. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay. So let's start in the beginning. How did George and Steven meet and what brought them together? So I have a lot of notes and without sort of reading them off, I have some great quotes that we got to read through. We do have to read through them. Just warning you, this might be some quote heavy (laughs) reading. (laughs) I feel like it's been a minute since we've done a very like chronological... I say yeah. a minute since we've done a chronological episode. I feel like a lot of our episodes are chronological. I know. We love a linear structure. But <laughs> it's been a minute since we've had like a good quotey episode. And yeah. yeah, there are a lot of great resources that were pulled uh, for this episode. So we got to. We just, we just got to go through it. Yeah. And if anyone's interested in the sources that we use for this, I will link it all on our website. And honestly, just the way that this all shook out, I'll probably post the notes for this episode on our Patreon. So anyway, if anyone's interested. Okay. So how did Stephen and George meet? What brought them together? So they both met at a student film festival in 1968. And here's a quote from the book Skywalking. When Steven Spielberg first saw George Lucas's student films, he was awed by their editing. Quote, George makes his visuals come to life with montage. That makes him unique in our generation, since most most of us do it instead with composition and camera placement. And in the beginning, Steven Spielberg continues to say, George was this very, very young, very droll Ewok. Make that a (laughs) pre-walk. He was somewhat Yoda-like. Although Francis Coppola was the inspiration for all film students then, George George came across as a young seer. He seemed to have all the wisdom, although Francis was doing all the doing. I think it's really interesting to think about how Stephen, who was younger than George Lucas at this time when they met, Stephen looked up to George and thought he was a cool kid. Stephen went to Long Beach State, south of Los Angeles, and George Lucas was part of the USC like movie bros pack. Anytime you dig into this era, you're like, wow, George Lucas went to school with like a lot of film greats. It's insane. And Steven Spielberg kind of did it, and he invented his own film program at Long Beach State and then eventually made a 20-minute short film that landed him a job at Universal Studios. If you've seen The Fablemans, which is Steven Spielberg's like 
basically autobiographical, autobiographical yeah <laughs> yeah like 60 it's, it's 70 30 percent autobiographical oh my, i i think it's 90 10 honestly i think it's 90 10 just it's different names i feel like you understand his rise into making short short films and like struggling in school and things like that i highly recommend the fablemans if you have any interest in steven spielberg and his work such a great movie and the ending is so iconic Mm -hmm. yeah I'm not going to give anything away but you'll understand like the difference I think between Steven Spielberg who had like this nurtured understanding of like I want to make movies like basically his entire life when George Lucas did not really have that and you if you've studied George Lucas you know that that he kind of had this he snapped into film, I guess, in his sort of later years. It was not throughout his entire life that he was super interested in film. But George was like in with the cool kids, right, Keelan, mm-hmm. at USC. So this, this like creates an interesting dichotomy already in the beginning of their friendship, I think. I think if you're someone who studies George Lucas's life or even film history, I think this period in in the 60s in uh, Southern California, you've got a lot of heavy hitters that are in school, just coming out of school or just starting their film careers. And George Lucas is definitely a part of what you kind of alluded to of this cool kids group. Uh, and, you know, he went to USC and a lot of other people did too. But there's also this kind of larger group that's existing in Southern California or the USC kind of mafia. Um, so you've got George Lucas, Hal Barwood, Matthew Robbins, Randall Cle- Randall Kleiser, John Milius, Walter Murch, Howard Kazanjian, Robert Dalva, Robert Zemeckis, Francis Ford Coppola. You just have a lot of people that will come to define filmmaking kind of all existing in this same time and space and they're all being creative together. And I think that that is, I think that's so important in kind of understanding, like, it's like this big think tank with all of your, your best friends, which are the smartest people in the room, every single one of them, incredibly creative in their own right. And everyone is like looking for a way to put their stamp on the, on filmmaking, on the world, on just storytelling in a new way and are so extremely passionate about what they're doing. And then Steven Spielberg is of course a couple years younger, but he's, you know, getting his start in his, in his own way. And like you said, kind of looking up to George, I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't remember what the exact distance, how many years older George is than Steven, but it's three years. It's three, it's years. three years. So I just imagine being like 15 years old and you see, or 17 and you see this like 20 year old, 21 year old who's making films with like all the coolest people you've ever met. (laughs) And you're like, this is incredible. This is amazing. And back then, you know, that, that feels like kind of a bigger age gap. You know what I mean? There's a difference between 17 and 20 and kind of your worldview and the experiences that you've had. Uh, At least it was for me, 17 still felt very young, whereas 20 also still felt very young, but, you know, a little bit more independence, I guess, there. So I think that this like early time period and and just what people were creating and the wheels that were starting to spin in all of these filmmakers' lives and careers and how they all kind of intersected with each other and then would spin out to kind of really define filmmaking in in the late uh, 1900s and like 1970s <laughs> and 80s and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, as Karina Longworth says, Hollywood's first century. Yes. I I always like that moniker. It's interesting, just to your point, you have Stephen who is designing his own film program while everyone at USC is, I think at that time, USC had the only film program in the country. And I imagine there's a jealousy there. There's a looking up to, there's a damn, I wish I could do that type of vibe. 
And yeah, so you have that whole pack of the USC guys and I think UCLA too, who are super influenced by French New Wave and are doing all these super esoteric things. They're editing differently. They're like figuring out new ways to do things that are different than the established ways that uh, Hollywood had been for so long. And yeah, so I think that it's interesting just to think about that age gap, I guess, at this point in life. And Steven Spielberg actually talks so much about how much George's like early films were influential to him and like really like rattled him almost and made him encouraged him, I guess. He says, upon seeing American Graffiti, and I know I'm jumping a couple of years, okay? I, I get it. <laughs> when, upon seeing American Graffiti, Steven, Steven Spielberg, he says he'd seen exciting previews of his own films, including Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Time, but he insists that American Graffiti, that screening, was the most powerful he's ever witnessed. It hit a chord of nostalgia because it was such a worn, warm nod backwards. It was for George's, mine, and everybody's generation. So, of course, I jumped ahead head there. But I think this is like kind of the only quote I could find about Stephen on one of um, George's early films. I mean, I don't even know if you could call American Graffiti one of his early films. I think usually that's sort of reserved for THX and things like that. I think this feeling for him when he looks back at American Graffiti, I think it continues to inspire him, I guess, um, as he's being nurtured in the Universal Studios system. But I think they they remain friends this entire time throughout all these different movies, all these different um, time periods and the time period, I think Caitlin mentioned, when George and uh, Francis Coppola started American Zoetrope, Zoetrope Studios in San Francisco. Obviously, there's some differences, but I think that this like group of filmmakers still is existing in the same ecosystem together, making movies and mm -hmm. working off each other. So I also find that interesting. But it wasn't until a little bit later, I guess, when they start to spend a little bit more time together, I guess, in their friendship. So jumping ahead even further, Steven Spielberg is making his groundbreaking Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And George had been making Star Wars too. George goes to visit Stephen on the Close Encounters set and George got super jealous. <laughs> I love this because I think as Star Wars fans, we know how freaking messy the production of Star Wars was, how it drove George into a nervous breakdown and he goes and sees Steven Spielberg's Columbia Pictures movie that like was so profitable that was made like on a dime basically that rescued Columbia Pictures from bankruptcy and George goes to the set and he's like this has run so well Steven's having a great time <laughs> I am so jealous I like everything. my I hate everything my crabby movie like I can't <laughs> what is this all and the Brits making, stop like, work at alien even movies PM. yeah <laughs> exactly the union <laughs> the union is just, yeah it's just so it's it's just funny to think about this piece during that time that I think as Star Wars fans we know so well from the behind the scenes stuff right yeah and George makes a deal which I think is I wanted to devote a section of our show to talk about this groundbreaking deal because it really is groundbreaking and it's a deal made in friendship but he said it does come from a place of jealousy <laughs> okay he says all right, I'll tell you what. I'll trade you some points with you. You want to trade some points. I'll give you 2.5% of Star Wars if you give me 2.5 of Close Encounters. So Steven Spielberg said, sure, I'll gamble with that. Great. So then later, <laughs> Steven goes on to say, both our movies are pro wi wildly profitable. 
like I mentioned, Close Encounters made so much money that it rescued Columbia Pictures from bankruptcy. The most money I had ever made on a film was from Close Encounters. But Close Encounters was just a meager success story. Star Wars was a phenomenon. And of course, I was acting beneficiary of a couple net points on that movie, which I'm still seeing money on today. <laughs> so uh. this is so funny <laughs> to me. This A lot has been said and written about with this concept, right? This profit sharing gesture. First off, it's a funny story, like number one. (laughs) But then if you really think about it, it really is revolutionary. So filmmaker John Millianis said this about what we're talking about. He says, the profit sharing gesture was considered revolutionary in Hollywood where money is hoarded. It was a wonderful thing that inspired the rest of us. End quote. To Lucas, it was simply a matter of friendship, a commitment made before anyone could imagine the size of the payoff. (laughs) This is just a funny thing that I have to bring into this. But in Skywalking, this book that I'm quoting from, it says, there was one person who had no piece of the Star Wars booty, Francis Coppola. George Lucas says, why should he? He had no connection to the movie. (laughs) So (laughs) I think this is so funny that, I don't know, George and Steven are like mutually beneficial. Here we are you and me talking about how great this friendship profit sharing thing was was in Hollywood and it's so revolutionary but here George Lucas is like why should Francis Coppola have anything to do with this he had nothing to do with it he had no connection to this George movie. Lucas is nothing if not a little practical like <laughs> like why are you even asking this this makes zero sense why why would he ever yeah. have a piece of the pie okay so then it begs the question why did Steven have a piece of the pie he had no connection to the movie so Steven actually did have a connection to the movie right he was his like greatest supporter for this movie that no one had a support support for <laughs> so we should probably get into that right like I think this gesture to me going forward and in, into collaborations that we'll talk about in the future, I think it's a foundation for their mutuality and trust that they had in their friendship. So I think if we're really moving into the Star Wars years, let's really move into the Star Wars years because of course we have this this point sharing, right? But I think one thing that kind of becomes is has become clear through this research on George and Stephen is almost what you were alluding to about Stephen looking up to George when he what like when they first kind of met or when Stephen first becomes aware of George Lucas and Stephen's comments about American Graffiti you know cut that screening kind of hitting him the hardest and then what I'll read here in a second his comments about the first viewing of Star Wars and even further on some of the comments about Indiana Jones and their collaboration there it just always feels like even though. George and Steven take different approaches. They're often on the same page about the essence and the feeling of things that they want an audience to come away with or what they want to convey to an audience. And I think that's ultimately why they work so well together and why they've had such a long lasting friendship, right? For Steven to have this immediate attachment and kind of visceral memory of American Graffiti and then to kind of immediately buy into literally and figuratively buy into Star Wars. And if you if you study George Lucas or Star Wars at all, you know that with kind of a rough cut, when he had a rough cut of Star Wars, he showed it to a bit of that Southern California mafia, the American Zoetrope tribe, like people in in that group and, and around that group. And um, they did not have <laughs> the best of things to say about Star Wars in that rough cut. <laughs> except for Steven. And after the movie was shown, Steven, quote, Steven had jumped up and said, this is going to be the biggest movie of all time. And everybody in the room looked up at Steven and said, 
quote, poor Stephen. <laughs> and I just, I can't imagine the energy in this room of, I don't know, maybe all of these guys that are three to 10 years older, like Stephen's probably one of the youngest guys in the room, right? And he's like, this is gung-ho, going to be so great. And all his like elder peers are like, oh God, who's going to, who's going to tell him? <laughs> <laughs> but another quote about this event from that book Charlotte referenced earlier, Skywalking, says, quote, they were all my real close friends and they felt sorry for me more than anyone else, anything else. There were a lot of condolences, which is even worse than saying you don't like the movie, Lucas recalls. Only Spielberg and Jay Cox reacted with enthusiasm at dinner. They sat on one side of the table praising Star Wars while De Palma faced them and made snide suggestions. Quote, George didn't lose his appetite, that's for sure, Spielberg says he kept eating his dinner nodding his head taking it all in but i don't believe he made any changes lucas let de palma and cox rewrite the opening crawl which he then modified other than that he was resigned to the failure of star wars quote from george i figured well it's just a silly movie it ain't going to work and i just i there's so much contained in here about all of these people I and i know i think we, we need to go through it okay. <laughs> right i mean one steven is immediately like Yes, this is going to be incredible. Steven sees the vision. I think that's what's important. And again, it's that essence of what Steven and George want to convey to their audiences. And I think something you can see in in all of their projects separately and together to have an experience for the audience that uh, is fun, is meaningful, is emotional, right? Then we have George at this dinner and he's just, I guess, like taking all this in but I love this comment that he doesn't make any changes based off of what all of his friends say. He's like, no. Brian De Palma deciding to rewrite the crawl, which I think, um, I can't remember last year on my birthday, Caitlin and I went to a screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark where Steven Spielberg was there with Lin-Manuel Miranda actually. And they were talking about star Wars and this particular dinner. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like a, this book says Brian De Palma, but Brian De Palma was the rudest of the bunch about Star Wars there and was like, it's so confusing. And I think he really suggested a lot of changes based off of uh, changing the opening crawl, finding it super confusing. And I think it's really interesting that it says which he modified. I wonder how much he modified it, <laughs> you know, uh, which he, meaning George Lucas, after Brian De Palma and Jay Cox rewrote the opening crawl, how much did George Lucas actually rewrite it uh, and change it after that? Who knows? But he was, I mean, I can't imagine this dinner. I also, where did this dinner happen? I want to make a pilgrimage <laughs> to it because it feels right? it feels sort of iconic to me. Yeah. I, like I want to find out. Steven Spielberg like definitely remembers. Out. He definitely remembers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, yeah. I really feel strongly about that. Um, <laughs> the other thing I think we have to talk about, you know, before Star Wars kind of premieres is a huge piece of it, right, is John Williams, the John Williams connection of it all. And that John Williams was introduced to George through Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg and John Williams, of course, have an incredibly long standing relationship. I think it's like what five films of Steven's that John hasn't scored. It's like an incredibly low number. <laughs> but Spielberg's very first movie with John Williams was The Sugarland Express in 1974. And then after that, he introduced uh, John Williams to George Lucas. And the, the rest is history. The rest is history. Also, we should say that at this cut that everyone ripped him to shreds, there was no music and like basically no sound effects. Yeah. So 
I think yeah. that I think that showing <laughs> still had the if I'm thinking of the right story, right? That that showing still had all of the fighter pilots, like the 1940s World War II shots that were used Spliced as inspiration. In. Yeah, for the trench run yeah, and stuff. The temp shots. Yeah. yeah. I think um it can't be understated this introduction of John Williams to George Lucas from Steven. I think it's a gift in a lot of ways, considering Steven's longstanding collaboration with John Williams. It's sort of like he like loaned him to him, you know? He found like a collaborator that really worked for Steven and Steven therefore was generous enough to help George find someone who could give that orchestral feel that he so desperately wanted. I think it kind of goes back to that quote you read from John Milanis earlier about the profit sharing being considered revolutionary where money is hoarded. And I think if mm-hmm. you kind of take that a step further, you could, you could, if they weren't friends, right. Or if they weren't really good friends, there would be competition between them, right. Of like, this, yes. this is my guy, yes. you know, you can't, I would prefer yes. if you didn't use my guy or something, something like it could be really sinister like that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it mm-hmm. wasn't. I mean, I think we're hitting on something that I think should be a general theme of this episode is that there's always been a sense of friendly competition between them from those things that go viral all the time when Star Wars passed draws in the box office Mm -hmm. and they sent each other a note. And now it's become a Hollywood tradition to do that where people even beyond George and Steven have sent those to each other. That sort of congratulations, I mean, as we mentioned, it was mutually beneficial for both of them, (laughs) for Star Wars to make a lot of money, but it still is a sense of camaraderie, right? And generosity in that is is different from how things in Hollywood were before. I mean, we're coming out of the studio system, right, where people are signed into studios and remain loyal with studios. And Steven is still part of that. And we'll get into that in the next part a little bit. And for George, I think that's an ideological (laughs) competition, I guess, (laughs) with him. And I think a lot of things go at odds with each other. But at the end of the day, I think that their competition with each other perhaps like fuels them in their creativity. And I think that's really cool. It's really cool to see because you've seen it be successful. Yeah. Healthy competition. Yeah. And it actually feels healthy. (laughs) It does actually feel healthy. And they both Yeah. And they both look back upon it. Like even through some of their like rougher patches in their life. I think Temple of Doom comes to mind. They always are like, man, we weathered that storm together. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's interesting. Anyway, so Star Wars comes out or is coming out, and we get the famous story about the trip to Hawaii. (laughs) And I always want to be careful when I reference these things on the podcast. You might, you listening might have never heard this Hawaii story, but I feel like if you're, again, like us, like knee deep in George Lucas history, (laughs) you've heard this story a thousand times. Like at the beach, knee deep. (laughs) Yeah, yes, yes. And that will uh, this me- metaphor is extended. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to read the story and it will continue and bring us into part two. So this is Steven Spielberg. George inaugurated this thing about building lucky sandcastles. You build it close to the high tide and if the sandcastle the next morning is no longer there, the ocean wiped it out. Your film will be a flop. <laughs> but if the castle's still there, the film will be a hit. So... George Lucas and his wife, Marsha, got the heck out of Dodge when Star Wars was premiering May 25th or a little bit earlier in a couple of screens around the country because he had been convinced that this movie, quote, ain't going to work. 
and he was nervous about it, right? All right, so he goes to Hawaii. He invites Stephen and his then wife, and they both go on a great vacation in Hawaii, and a lot happens on this vacation, but I do love that sandcastle story. So the next part of the story is, according to Spielberg, the sandcastle survived the night, and shortly after, Lucas received a phone call revealing that every 10.30 a.m. showing of Star Wars was sold out across the country. So finding out this like monumental news, he was with Steven. Like they were on vacation together. And guess what, folks? I've been to that beach. It is a magical beach. And I, <laughs> I think that the sandcastle story has kind of changed a little bit from year to year. Like if you if you read different yeah. <laughs> accounts and everything, um, especially the next part of the story, which we'll get to in part two. But I love that this is like a tradition for them. And I wonder how much they have done this together or individually and like send each other photos of the sandcastle or what like I love this <laughs> this uh instance of superstition it doesn't necessarily always I don't tend to think of George Lucas as a superstitious person who would kind of I know. buy into this I kind know. of thing and I say buy in I say that very lightly I don't know how seriously he does or doesn't take something like this but I do right. think I don't think it was that serious yeah like, but I, I also think, think kind of a fun thing I also think about George's nervous breakdown you know circa May 1977 mm-hmm. and he's like ha 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 the sandcastle thing but internally he's like oh my god the sandcastle must live you know what I mean mm-hmm. like <laughs> it's it's funny but not like funny ha ha <laughs> So true. So in all of the, I said, I mentioned there are various different accounts of the story. The sandcastle sounds like it was absolutely massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some other quotes I read, Spielberg was like, we were talking, because spoiler, they were ta- also talking about Indiana Jones on this trip, supposedly. And uh, he's like, but we were also building this massive sandcastle. Sand Whereas I'm thinking of like, you a know, a little, a little baby sand, like, you know, those those molds you buy for kids at the yeah. store. But I'm like, what are their skill levels like? Is this a, a hidden talent of Stephen and George to be able to build sandcastles? Well, they're creators of worlds, so I'm sure they're good at creating sandcastles. Uh, are time. they? Are they? They're visionaries. Know. Are they creators uh, in that way? After, <laughs> after reading so many of these quotes, I honestly picture this sandcastle being literally so big like it took them all day like they just kept going yeah yeah me too me too (laughs) and I also wonder what their definition of withstood the night is you know is it just like a giant mound when they come out the next morning (laughs) you know what I mean like how that'll happen that's what I was thinking does that count does that mean it's it's standing can can you see them coming out on their balcony right and it's just the mound and Stephen looks at George and is like that totally counts gonna be a success yeah. <laughs> and George is like, are you sure? And he's like, absolutely. We can tell where our castle is. <laughs> and then they got the phone call, which yeah. is just great. I, just, I love that. But spinning like, what our about own other yarn movies? about this yes. story. <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on to part two and talk about the next phase. All right. Welcome to part two, where we're talking about the collaboration era where they that era is still continuing, but where they really start collaborating. And of course, 
we're talking about Indiana Jones. That's what inspired this episode. Uh, Dial of Destiny is fast approaching at the end of the month. Um, and this is where, you know, they really kind of combine forces and create Indiana Jones shortly after Star Wars. So during this time on the beach, we have a quote from Steven kind of about the genesis of their their collaboration on Indiana Jones. So Steven says, quote, during that fateful encounter on the beach while we were building a monumental sandcastle, hence Charlotte and I being like, how big was this thing? Monumental. George finished telling me the basic elements of the story, Indiana Jones, and my tongue was hanging out when he dropped a bomb by informing me that the film was probably going to be directed by Phil Kaufman, who had helped him initially with a few elements of the story. George asked me to hold my breath and he would check with Phil and see if Phil was going to give it up for something else. And sure enough, some months later, George called me and said, are you still interested in that movie I told you about in Hawaii? Because Phil isn't going to do it now. I said, yes, I am. Certainly. We sat down and George suggested that I select the writer. I just convinced Universal to purchase a script for me called Continental Divide by a new writer I discovered named Larry Kasdan, who had only written one screenplay prior to that called The Bodyguard. When I got Universal to buy the script at the time for me to produce and direct, I brought Larry in to meet George. I was very impressed with Larry and I said I'd like Larry to write Raiders. We have made it to where George and Steven, after or maybe while they were making the sandcastle, George was talking about the three stories that he made with Phil Kaufman about Indiana Jones. And he it, at the time, it was called Indiana Smith, <laughs> which I think is so funny. Um, the That was in 1973 when he had a dinner with Phil Kaufman and I think Francis Coppola and George all talking about Indiana Smith at that point. And I love that Stephen was immediately interested in doing it. And it's also funny because Stephen like really, 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 really wanted to make a James Bond movie. So this is what yielded that was George being like, I got something better than James Bond. It's Indiana Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so wrong. I know. It's it does sound so wrong. It's so funny because it's not Smith is not that far away from Jones, but it is it does sound so different. It is incorrect. It's (laughs) yeah, it is the right right move. But I love how the story has like kind of molded into something a little snappier, which is we talked about it together on the beach in Hawaii, right? When That's not actually true. George had this idea before. He worked with a writer about it. He put it on the shelf. Like George says, I put this on the shelf. (laughs) We love love to say that on Sky Talkers. That's why I mentioned that. Anyway, I I just want to set the record straight that George came up with this before. They talked about it on the beach. Stephen was interested. And then the wheels got turned in a little bit later. Yeah, the, the story sounds so good, right? We were on the beach celebrating the success of Star Wars, Star Wars and created like inter- Indiana Jones. Interconnected. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and like I've said it before too. And yeah. I I think it's fine because it's that is true. Not not true, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. But uh, I love how it worked out. And I even think the Lawrence Kasdan connection, I think, is just brilliant, too. Um, And George Lucas had some like very strong ideas of Indiana Jones, Indiana Smith early on. And some of the quotes about them are really interesting. And I think there's a lot of legend that goes into Indiana Jones and the creation of that and how George didn't want Harrison Ford to be in it. Stephen did. And then George eventually was like, sure, that works. <laughs> and now Harrison Ford is couldn't be more iconic as perhaps his most iconic role. And he was a perfect choice. But there's some like original stuff that's really interesting and 
a little weird about that early Indiana Jones stuff. So here's a quote from George about kind of an early, early versions of Indiana, Indiana Smith, I guess we should say. Originally, also, Indiana was a playboy and lived this fast life in Manhattan. Lucas says he used his treasure hunting to fund his lifestyle. When we got on to that part of it, Stephen and Harrison both fought the idea. I kept pushing it and pushing it, and it's still there. It's just not even talked about. Especially in the first movie, Indy's driven by the significance of what he's going after, not the money. He's basically a mercenary, but it's the thrill of discovery that keeps him going. He loves archaeology, and he loves discovering the truth about ancient civilizations and history. And I I love this kind of uh, quote about their collaboration altogether and Harrison being a part of it, too, and this kind of impetus of where where Indiana gets his motivations from and kind of some things that are left on the cutting room floor. But as George says, it's not not in there. It's just not talked about, which I is kind of just a like funny, classic George Lucas. Yeah, it's kind of a funny roundabout way of saying we didn't cut it. We just didn't include it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, okay. There's a lot of quotes in these books about how so much of George George is about like getting the essence right, getting the essence right. And about creating like artistic films, which you understand what the theme is, right? And I think with this, it's George is like, no, this is still my vision. Don't worry, guys. This is my vision. (laughs) But you don't see it. You don't know that (laughs) originally Indiana Jones was a playboy who lived in his fast life in Manhattan. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Stephen and Harrison fought on this. And it is pretty clear when you read a lot of history about Indiana Jones that Harrison actually did have a pretty big part in Mm -hmm. shaping who we know Indiana Jones to be today, which I think is pretty interesting and testament to probably how much Harrison Ford loves that character, right? Like I think that we think about, when we think about Harrison Ford loving Han Solo, loving Indiana Jones for so long, I think as fans, we got this impression that Harrison Ford could not care any less about Han Solo, (laughs) right? Of course, like we know that's actually not true, but he loves Indiana Jones when actually I really think he's closer to Han Solo as a person. I don't know him personally, obviously, but (laughs) I think he always is like, I, I I am I Indiana Jones is me right like I want to do and it's like actually you are a pilot you are do that you're like I have a heart of gold like all these things that are more like <laughs> Han Solo you know what I mean so anyway well kind of knowing knowing too that Harrison fought really hard for certain storylines for Han Solo that didn't come to pass maybe also yes. kind of contributed to that need to kind of stand his ground perhaps more in Indiana Jones or I don't know just that the tide had turned or the way that they collaborated now on these projects was different than the first because at this point this is this is Harrison's fourth fifth movie you know depending on which movie we're talking about with with George Lucas so they have a long collaboration of working together just between the two of them not counting Mm -hmm. Steven you know so I don't know. Lots of layers to think about with these relationships between these people. Yeah, I think he feels a major ownership uh, around the role of mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, a creative ownership. George goes on to talk about what he learned on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think it's an interesting thing because he also comments on his relationship to Stephen. So let's hear it. He says, what I learned on Raiders is that you set the whole thing up. Get the script pretty much the way you want it. Then you hire the right person whom you agree with. You go with their vision. I let Steve direct it in whatever way he wanted to direct. But the truth is we agreed completely on the vision. 
The only other person that I'm close to aesthetically is Ron Howard. With these two, we can almost finish finish each other's sentences. Francis and I are great friends, but creatively, we see things very differently. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, because it's always like... With every quote, it's like, okay, but how does... It seems like the person that's asking the question is asking, how does Francis Coppola fit into this? And George is always like, he doesn't. George is like, he doesn't really. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think it's hilarious. (laughs) But I do think it's very clear. There's a lot to say. Okay. First, George says, the first thing, what I learned on Raiders is that you set the whole thing up. I think this is something that George carries into Star Wars and really thought he was going to do with Return of the Jedi. You kind of find out that that didn't really happen with Return of the Jedi with his chosen director, right, Richard Marquand, and you end up knowing that George actually took over that project in a lot of ways because he didn't, I guess, quote, agree completely on the vision as he did with Steve here on Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Mm -hmm. So. George found basically his creative twin in Steven. So <laughs> it's like a duplication a situation. A balance, yes. if you will. Yeah, yeah, there's a quote from Robert Watts about their relationship. And it says, George, he said, George and Steven have a great relationship. It's a partnership made in heaven, sharing the creative endeavor. They're both responsible filmmakers. Steven loves directing. George doesn't. Steven takes in projects others have developed. George likes to develop all his own. And I think that's the it's that balance. But they both, like George said in that quote you read, Charlotte, they have a vision. They agree on a vision. And that can like if they both have the same end goal in mind, there's more leeway if there's give and take in how they get there. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think there's a lot of rumors about how George this is unconfirmed, okay? Um, that George wanted Steven Spielberg to direct Return of the Jedi. And then it went to Richard Marquand, which I think, again, goes probably with all the frustrations in which I named like two minutes ago about how by the end of it, George was like taking the camera out of Richard Marquand's hand, right? And doing it himself and really insisting on things that he really wanted, which is all fine and good when we like look look retrospectively on it. But I can just imagine that there's like a lot of tension there. And for Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's very clear that this was like a perfect project yeah. for George Lucas here in which I'm sure when he was filming Return of the Jedi, he was like, Ugh, why can't it be like how it was with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which also was an unbelievably perfect project because I think they came in under budget. They shot it like so fast. Like, I can't remember. It's, it's 72 days. It's it's so insane. It's insane. Like that's incredible. Yeah. I think I, I was um, reading an article that I was talking where Steven was kind of talking about the shooting schedule and he said that they had budgeted for something like 80 or 90 days, which seems short even then. But he said that they always knew that they were going to come in early and like under budget on this project. And he, you know, to the point in George's quote about get the script pretty much the way you want it. Steven in that article talked a ton about storyboarding and how they storyboarded everything to the nth degree on Indiana Jones. And that's a big part of why they were able to shoot it so quickly and and so efficiently. Yeah. uh, The whole concept of storyboarding. I mean, I think that that's an example of Steven learning a lot from George in terms of that filmmaking Mm -hmm. process too. And that's something that we see even today with animatics and things like that. So yeah. And even with the volume too, that's the 
that's the whole point of the volume too, is doing a lot of that post-production, but making it pre-production. Totally. So I guess when we get to the sequel of Indiana Jones, obviously Raiders comes out, it's super successful. We're here today. We know, we know all this, right? (laughs) (laughs) So successful. Um, When it comes to making a sequel, I actually found out later and it's in our notes later that Stephen and George actually signed a deal to do five movies with Paramount. Obviously that didn't happen because Crystal Skull came out in, I can't remember, 2008, 2007. I can't remember. And the latest Indiana Jones movie coming out this month is Disney Lucasfilm. It's not Paramount. It's the only one that's not Paramount. So I am curious about that contract, but I guess that was the initial plan. And maybe that was a licensing agreement. Obviously, I don't know the details of the contract, but um, that didn't happen with Paramount, clearly. Anyway, so we get to the point of creating a sequel. So in the book Skywalking, it talks a little bit about Temple of Doom and I'm just going to read a quote. Lucas's old friends, Willard Huck and Gloria Katz, who had written the final versions of American Graffiti, were hired to do the script for the story. There were some questions about whether Steven Spielberg would want to direct the sequel. Generally, Hollywood directors prefer not to do a follow-up of their hits. Quote, I'm afraid we might lose him, so you guys better get this done fast, Huck says Lucas warned warned them. The script pleased Steven, and he overcame his reluctance. Quote, Steven was amazed. He couldn't get out of it because we did it so fast. Willard Huck continues to go on and said, George wanted it to be really scary. Steve was leery at first, but then he got into it. And when Steve does something, he does it to the nth degree. I think it's interesting (laughs) that in their friendship, George is like, we got to get Steven back. Let's just do it real fast. Let's send him the script. Let's set a date. Let's do it. We're doing it. We're doing it. Steven can't say no. He can't take no for an answer. He's like, are are we here on vacation or are we shooting a movie? I don't know. Here's the camera. no, but literally. And I'm I'm assuming it's like, I know Stephen. George is like, I bet Stephen has nothing going on on these dates because I've talked to him we over dinner. We share so calendars. this is when we're going to do it. So you can't say no. Yeah, literally shared calendar. And I I bet that's he sort of like trapped him into it. And then Stephen was like, I'm in. Sounds good. <laughs> so. I wonder. OK, I wonder if they still share calendars today. If oh, they've got just, each like, other's I have so many thoughts about like stuff. I know. I have so many thoughts about like their entire friendship in their 70s. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know so much. Like how often do they talk? I feel like they talk all the time. I don't know. Do do they text? No, they do not text. No, I I fully believe that Stephen is all about the emojis. And George is like, what? is this you're so right <laughs> I, That's exactly I really I really feel that I feel like George will send like a idea or something and Stephen will absolutely send back the emoji with the hard eyes <laughs> I do think it needs to be noted that this was a tumultuous time in particularly George Lucas's life he was getting a divorce and the fact that George wanted this movie to be super scary, I think really does like the themes and the writing and everything in Temple of Doom can definitely be read from the lens of divorce, especially like the reunification at the end with the kids to the families. It's it's a lot. Right. I think it's interesting, though, that Stephen was like, no, yeah, it needs to be scary. And I think they were both sort of feeding each off each other's like negative vibes at this point. <laughs> I I love Temple of Doom, but I definitely it, it's a scary movie. It's scary. It scared me as a kid, and 
it was the first PG-13 movie. It's the reason why we have PG-13. Mm-hmm. That's a little debated, but it is the reason why we have PG-13 is because of this movie. And I love that they did this together, that they got they got us PG-13 together. You know, it was a group effort. <laughs> it, was a, it was a duo. Thank you. It was a duo effort. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I know. Okay. So one of their other collaborations that is just not talked about enough, okay, is The Land Before Time, the cartoon dinosaur movie. I just, so growing up, as you all know, I did not watch Star Wars growing up, but I had three younger cousins who lived nearby that I visited a lot growing up and they freaking loved The Land Before Time. So I was always watching The Land Before Time at their house. And it's funny to think about my relationship with George Lucas slash Star Wars, slash Lucasfilm, slash Steven Spielberg now. But the real introduction for me was Land Before Time. And that is That's just, hilarious. it's like wild for me to think about. And I don't think it was until way too late in my life when I realized that they did this. And Kathleen Kennedy too. Well, yeah. Well, yeah the other piece of this is that Kathleen Kennedy is along for this ride too. <laughs> throughout the whole totally. ride. Yes. And it's really interesting. But Land Before Time, to be honest, like you're probably right. That was my introduction to mm-hmm. them too. I loved it. Um, they only produced the, that first movie, which is the best one, let's be honest, Yeah, um, together. And there was other people involved too. There was neither of them did writing or directing on it but they produced it and it was it was steven's idea so <laughs> <laughs> i love this quote you have here from george i think it's from george so steve had this great idea about baby dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> it's just i don't know to I go to go from temple of doom where we're talking about them in perhaps a more negative headspace with personal things going on in their lives to then steve had this great idea about baby dinosaurs and <laughs> Mm -hmm. it's funny it's funny it's also funny to consider that this was steven's first time with the dinosaur movie yeah and then in just a couple years later he was like i'm gonna make a scary one you know (laughs) and it's gonna be one of the best movies of all time you know (laughs) and i i i love that so lucas sat in on the original story conferences with steven spielberg kathleen kennedy frank marshall um, they all produced the film and the writer, Stu Krieger. So I need to revisit Land Before Time. I think that's something that we missed, actually, I, I will say, in our animation series that we did a couple summers ago. Mm-hmm. It could have been mentioned offhand as something that George produced, but... We didn't go into um, it. We didn't really go into it. And I think if you want to, if you're looking through the lens of George and Steven, it's curious that Steven perhaps had this idea of doing like a cartoon baby dinosaur movie, right? And was like, "We, sh- I, I want to do an animated movie at the on the cusp of when VHS was becoming so big. Like, can't forget about that too, um, because I think my introduction to Land Before Time was renting it at Blockbuster. <laughs> so, anyway, all that to be said, I think it's it was a brilliant business move right yeah <laughs> both of them yeah we never rented it my cousins always they had every single damn every literally it was there's like 20 no they <laughs> no they i'm i no. they had every single one <laughs> so many the, the only one that matters is the first and it's like i can actually see the, the third is good i can see the uh, the line of all the vhs you know the like big boxes <laughs> just all in a row mm-hmm. of land before time yeah. in their house yeah 
brilliant moves. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. Captured the hearts of so many, so many kids, it's, including both of us and your cousins. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I can tell you so much about that movie from heart right now. Like, it is so crazy. I I could not, <laughs> you see, because... Really? I, no, because we... How about I, some buzzwords to, like, jog your memory? Tree star. Okay. Little neck. Yes. Yes. Sarah. Yeah. Yes. The triceratops. Yes. Like... Yeah. No, I I know the movie. Home tree. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. I got it. Okay. <laughs> it's like, little foot. <laughs> yeah. Things out. Buzzwords. <laughs> the Jurassic period. <laughs> Ducky. Yeah. Ducky. <laughs> The Big Bang. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So The Last Crusade, I think, was a really good time for both of them. I think they had a great time on this. And they all they have to say about this is amazing things (laughs) about each other. It's like they reached this point, I think, in their, like, age, I guess, where they were feeling grateful. Okay. (laughs) Here's what – you know what I mean? (laughs) You know? They're in their hot girl summer during The Last Crusade. I don't know. I think that they were like, this is going to be the last one that we do together. It was such a good time. Blah, 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 blah. They brought in Sean Connery, who was sort of a wink and a nod to the fact that Stephen wanted to make a James Bond movie. So Stephen says this about George Lucas. George Lucas is smarter than I am about a lot of stuff. George is a better storyteller than I am. He loves to collaborate, and he collaborated all the way with me on the indie pictures. He was very much involved in the editing on all three. If I'm going into a project with or without George, I'll ask him to read the script and I'll say, George, what do you think about this? What am I getting myself into? He is my most generous friend. I mean, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Really so nice. I know. I think this is so nice. I feel like we'll kind of get into this in part three. But I think when you think about the reputations of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, I think that people think of Steven as like the better filmmaker overall, or rather the more hits, whereas George has had a lot of highs, but he's also had a lot of lows per the critics. You know what I mean? And so, but to think about their relationship and the way that they view films and that Steven, who a lot of people consider the quote unquote better director or filmmaker in some respects, is always kind of looking to George for advice, for approval, for what do you think about this? I think it just really, I don't know, it it is like the nicest thing ever to know that their relationship like doesn't exist with the uh, the critic's eye. I just think there's something like really sweet about that and that there's never, it's like that healthy competition that we were talking about before, that there's never ill will or... X is better than Y when it comes to the films that they have or haven't made or or anything like that. They see value in each other's creativity no matter what it is. Totally. And Stephen actually goes on to even say more nice things about George Lucas. He says, George is a good friend and we think so much alike that there were rumors that we were the same person. (laughs) At a science fiction convention, someone said that we were never seen in the same place at the same time. There was a rumor (laughs) that we were one alien being who could change form. People occasionally congratulated Steven Spielberg for Star Wars and credit Lucas with E.T. Quote, I don't bother to correct people anymore, and I occasionally sign George's name when I'm asked for an autograph. This is hilarious to me because I feel like George does not do this. (laughs) George definitely does not do this. He does not do this. Stephen does. And I think that kind of <laughs> that goes to sort of the fact that Stephen has had hit after hit after hit after hit. And I don't necessarily know if that's 100% true for George, like uncritically, I guess. Yeah. Right. I mean, George has had massive hits and mass- has a massive amount of wealth from his success in Hollywood, of course. But 
George was plagued by the critics. He hated critics. In fact, he named General Kale in Willow after his <laughs> harshest critic. Like that was something that plagued him. But that Stephen is like unbothered by that because his movies were critically received really well, yeah. right? And I think because of that, Stephen has a sense of humor with that. I don't necessarily know if George does. Of course, all this is unsubstantiated. Maybe he does. I think, okay, if I could play out my headcanon for a second for how this scenario would go, right? If if a fan, right? If someone got them mixed up, not a critic or anything like that. If someone thought that George was Stephen, right? George would be like, no, I'm not Steven. I made this other movie called Star Wars. I think he would play it really, he would really deadpan it. You know what I mean? Just to see the guy's reaction. Whereas Steven would be like, yeah, I'm George Lucas and, and sign it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my own personal headcanon, but. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think that uh, they just have had, so this is, we're, we're in the last crusade era, 1989. They've just been collaborating with each other for years like almost a decade at this point and the hits don't really stop they keep um collaborating with each other in a lot of ways in a lot of different ways I think as George kind of slows down a little bit and shifts his direction to working on the Star Wars prequels and Steven kind of goes through if you've seen the Steven Spielberg documentary that's on HBO on I Max. HBO. I think it's on yeah I don't know it was HBO produced it so I think it is technically HBO but um it's so good but I do think at this time if I remember correctly it's been a while he had a little bit of a faith crisis and this is when he really decides to take on the work of doing Schindler's List I think in a lot of ways he like shifts a little bit into like more like serious filmmaking which not to say that he wasn't doing that before, and I hope that that doesn't come across as, like, I don't know, snobby, but I do think that Stephen, like, takes a turn to make more, like, fav- like Academy-favorable movies around this time, right, mm-hmm. versus George, who isn't. And I actually, before we move on to part three, I, I kind of skipped over a part that I wanted to talk about, um, which in, George- in Karina Longworth's George Lucas bio, which is so worth reading. It's very small. It's kind of hard to track down. But she has some interesting takes that I think you don't really find in other George Lucas biographies. I've talked about it before. And Karina Longworth has this great podcast called You Must Remember This. She's also Ryan Johnson's wife. It's interesting to put all those things into perspective, I guess. Whatever. But just when we talk about competition in different camps and perhaps this point in which Stephen goes off to do more like critically acclaimed films um, that are more serious or self-serious... And just thinking about some like divisions between George and, and Stephen and how ultimately like that doesn't necessarily matter. There's this quote in this book that I would like to read. Stephen was aware that to rebels such as Coppola and Lucas, he represented, quote, the establishment. While they were fighting to get American Zoetrope, Coppola and, and George's um, studio off the ground and keep it from falling apart, Steven Spielberg acknowledged later, quote, I was being raised and nurtured inside Universal Studios. I was working inside the system, end quote. Spielberg recognized in Lucas the same ambition he he himself had to make mainstream movies for mass audiences, but to be able to do it in his own way without interference from studio suits. The only way to make that happen was to finance the movies independently. Of all the ambitious young men in Hollywood, this was something that only Spielberg after Jaws and Lucas after Star Wars had the clout and capital to pull off. Lucas determined to avoid the traps 
that his former mentor Coppola had fallen into was a receptive audience. Soon Lucas and Spielberg were discussing a collaboration. So obviously this was before Raiders, but something that Karina comments on here is this raised inside the studio system type of vibe, right? This like Steven represents the establishment and George is trying to do some like hippie thing on the side. And it honestly feels like through most of George Lucas's career, that's how it feels like the San Francisco of it all versus the Los Angeles. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really astute that Karina commented on this because you don't really find it elsewhere. I just have to imagine that between George and Steven, that this is a subject of debates um, it just honestly, even based off geography of like Los Angeles versus San Francisco, building the studio up, starting Lucasfilm and things like that. And how George was like doing his own thing constantly, like before Steven was, I think that they obviously have cheered the, each other on, but I do think that this is probably something that they have debated for years. And it's probably, I don't think it's like a point of contention, but it's definitely something that's a difference between the two. Yeah, I I think this is such a fascinating uh, component of their relationship and just how they would have like grown up in the film industry, like in the really thinking about like the 60s and 70s when they're they're both kind of getting their start and really starting these films and how much their their film careers and how much stress George Lucas was under and financing all of the Star Wars films by himself. I did find actually uh, in, there was a 60 minute, we'll talk about it in the next section, but a 60 minute special about the Phantom Menace that actually references this divide between them, which I thought was I, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it. And George Lucas goes on a rant about the studios in it. <laughs> oh wait, I've seen that. I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's great because Stephen references it too, and then sixty minutes does as well. And I think it speaks a lot to their personalities. I think we think of Stephen as more personable in a lot of ways he's yeah more personable I think and that kind of relationship that we had that he had with studios was probably easier than what George had experienced because from the get-go studios and George did not get along right it was just oil and water from day one <laughs> whereas I totally. don't think that was necessarily Steven's experience you know thinking about how he got his start um in this, like he got his start literally in the studios. You know what I mean? So totally. the the origin story of both of their relationships with big Hollywood was completely different and kind of sent them on these different paths. And it's kind of like they just, they would never kind of diverge from those paths, even despite their, their years of friendship and collaborations. And all that to be said, when their, their relationship obviously is pretty mutually beneficial. We can't forget about how they both use... Industrial Light and Magic and Skywalker mm -hmm. Sound. Stephen leans on the, those were George's doing right in the very beginning, and Stephen uses them and knows they're the best too. Something interesting is Stephen asked George Lucas for a favor so that he could release Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. And something that's interesting is that George offers to spot Jurassic Park and like kind of finish the movie for him so that he can work on Schindler's List. And I feel like not a lot of people know that. I didn't. I learned something new with that one. Yeah. And I, it's fascinating that Steven releases Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. I mean, I, I, I can't even. What a master. I know. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I know. I know. I know. And both of those are just so seminal in their own ways, right? Yeah. And Again, I think that we both look at those as like absolute masterpieces and 
perhaps it like wouldn't have been possible for those to be released to some, at the same time if George Lucas didn't help him out, you know? Well, even, I you mean, don't know. Jurassic Park and its relationship to ILM, like there's... There's totally. so much in there and, you know, we don't, we don't need to get into it <laughs> because right. we have before and um, there, Light and Magic is an entire documentary on ILM and how fantastic they are with a big spot on Jurassic Park. But it's like, of course, George or, uh, Steven knew that the only person who could get his vision for Jurassic Park or had the technology to get there would be ILM slash George. Okay, should we move on to the later years and like fast forward a bunch of years to the 2000s? Yeah, let's jump into the 60-minute interview. Okay, great. <laughs> Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Welcome to part three, where we're going to talk about the later years. And as we kind of segue into that and wrap up our conversation about Jurassic Park, George says that it was during, you know, work on Jurassic Park that he knew that he could make the next three Star Wars films. So again, this kind of uh, convergence of of inspiration and motivation, healthy competition, or even just that the work that ILM, the technology that was able to be used on Jurassic Park said to George that he was ready to move into the next stage of making Star Wars films. And that moves us into The Phantom Menace. And of course, we know that computer-generated CGI work and stop-motion characters and things like that is a great hallmark of The Phantom Menace. And there's this fascinating 60-minute special, which I know I've seen clips of before, but hadn't watched in its entirety, or at least I don't think this was the full 60 minute, the clip I have, but it was like 10, 15 minutes, something like that. And they're talking about the computer generated images in The Phantom Menace and how groundbreaking they are. And 60 minutes kind of follows George around uh, on like a day in the studio kind of vibe and how all the computer animators and people at ILM are working and you know, they're responsible for two seconds of footage every day. That's how intensive this computer generated work is for these new special effects. And they cut to this interview with Steven, where Steven is also talking about how incredible these effects are. And he's talking about how to build these types of sets that you see in something like Star Wars would be so cost prohibitive to to George and, and to creators who want to create these fantastical worlds. And uh, the interview responds back and says, aren't these, as in the computers, also cost prohibitive? And Stephen kind of laughs and he says, well, George owns ILM, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what kind of break he's getting from his own company. I have to figure if I made this movie, it would cost four times as much to make. <laughs> and I think that's such a great little... I don't, it wasn't even snide, but just uh, a realistic view of how George can operate differently because he owns ILM. And 60 Minutes narrates, that's also because Spielberg's films are bankrolled by Hollywood. Lucas is paying for Star Wars entirely on his own. So he has an almost unprecedented amount of independence and control. And then it cuts to this little rant from George Lucas. And it is a bit of a rant. He's very passionate <laughs> when he's saying this. He goes, when I make a movie, I pay attention to how much it costs. But at the same time, I get to do the things I want to do without someone coming in arbitrarily saying, no, you can't do that. 
The problem is the studio executives. The problem is the studios used to be owned by people who cared about movies. Now they're corporations. They don't love movies. They don't go to movies. They don't know what a movie is. And they do focus groups to determine who will go see a movie. And they try to change a story to fit what the polling result is. And you can't do that. That's not the way you make movies because it's not a business. It's an art form. And there's a brief pause and then they go back to the, com- the people working on the computers and they say it's an art form that George controls entirely, which felt like a little. <laughs> like, I mean, and- I love it. I love that because he's right. But I but also, that- <laughs> yeah, they're talking about how every single uh, frame goes through George's approval and it just it layers, layers upon layers. <laughs> I just think this is so great. And yeah, to your point about the difference between, you know, Stephen being raised up in the the studios and being really the the darling child of the studios, if you will, and George Lucas being the rebel and the fact it's it's like enemies to lovers (laughs) of, of filmmaking and for it to come up in kind of 1999 you know, just before the Phantom Menace came out, I think was was so great. Um, and just really, really fascinating. Totally. Um, there's just like a sense of mutuality though, I think, that yeah. you get throughout um Steven and throughout the prequels, I guess, with Steven Spielberg. I mean, like even in the beginning documentary, remember when Steven visits the ranch and they're looking at the Jar Jar. Maybe they're not looking at the Jar Jar. I think they're looking at the battle, battle droid, droid, right? Yeah. And then, like, the arm falls off. It's so classic. Like, <laughs> Steven. Steven's just excited. It's like, this you is know? so cool. I see it. And I think the arm falls off and he's like, there's, like, $5 million. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> he tries <laughs> to put it that. back on and he puts it on upside down. And George is like, yeah, no, no, just... no, no. That's not how it goes. And he, like, <laughs> <laughs> But just the the sense that you got from the beginning is an unbelievably honest Star Wars documentary that we will never get again. No. And I think that's Stephen visiting is like a bright spot. George is so excited. Yeah. (laughs) George is so excited. He's like showing him all these things. And Stephen is like, dang, this is going to be so cool. It's going to be big. It's going to be a huge battle. Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm so into it. Right. And from that, you just get the sense that Stephen kind of always supported George's vision here and knew that it was going to pay off in the end, um, wherever that end was going to be. It's going to take him a long time, but it was going to take 10 years. And uh, Stephen was all in, I think. Stephen always sees the vision. and He does. He knows, <laughs> but I think he also, I'm sure at this point in their relationship, also knows that George is going to George is going to George is going to George. And you can either get on the train or you can get off in a lot of ways. I don't mean totally. that to sound um, bad, but that's what George Lucas is known for. It's his vision. And come hell or high water, he will tell his story the way that he wants to. And, you know, he's going to do a lot of cool things along the way, probably. Maybe some things you don't love, but something new is going to come out at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think that if you want to go back to that 60 minute interview where Steven's like using computer generated technology and ILM and things that are owned by George Lucas, like all that is being developed for the movie in the movie in real time that Steven will eventually get to use too. So it's it's mutual. It's mutually <laughs> beneficial. He's mutually excited about it. Right. Yeah. And he's like in 10 I years when George has figured out how to bring the cost down. 
I will come along. <laughs> it's it's not even that. It's probably he knows that like he'll get a break yeah. because of his best friendship, right? And I think that then again, there's this sort of interesting mutuality where if Stephen, if you do see him as the Hollywood establishment, if he is on board with George Lucas's like hippie, weirdo, separate vibes, mm-hmm. then there is a sense that he's like that Stephen can go then back to Los Angeles and bring the elixir of like how great and brilliant George Lucas is. And (laughs) it's giving hero's journey, but also like (laughs) the fact is, is like Stephen has never said like a bad word about George. In fact, all he does is really talk about how much he adores this man, you know, and his friendship. And I think it, I think it has helped sort of boost the public opinion of George Lucas in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. especially when the public opinion of Steven Spielberg remains pretty stagnant and high and positive, yeah. right? So I think that all of that is just like very nice. And I think it has benefited George Lucas in a lot of ways. Later down the road, there's some uh, interesting things about how Steven actually directed an animatic or two in Revenge of the Sith. The quote in The Making of Revenge of the Sith by J.W. Rinsler is, quote, George Lucas gave Spielberg a few scenes to play with at the animatic stage, a bit of a Mustafar duel and the Yoda duel with the Emperor, along with a couple of others. Who knows what those couple of others are? Who knows? How much of Spielberg's contribution made it into the final film, only Lucas or Spielberg could say, particularly as George revised and reinvented every scene in the film so extensively in editorial. So you don't know (laughs) what he worked on, but I feel like we can feel it a little bit that the action scenes are particularly buzzy and well shot, I guess, um, in Revenge of the Sith that feel, I don't know, feels like maybe Spielberg did have some touch on that but regardless and we'll I feel like we'll actually never know the specifics of it and I think Rinsler is right like George changed so many things in camera in shot and post yeah super interesting that Spielberg actually got to retool some pieces in Revenge of the Sith and I actually wonder I just think that is not it personally like I think there's more in Star Wars that Steven had to do with but I don't know if we'll ever really know any of the specifics what's crazy is that even in the archives the like massive prequel and original trilogy but in the prequel archives book Stephen, those those animatics come up exactly once and it's a caption so it's like a it's like a, a picture of one of the animatics and the caption just says this is one of Steven Spielberg's animatics for Revenge of the Sith and that's it it's literally it <laughs> classic I'm like tell me more please I bet I you know I don't have this and I don't have a CD player anymore but like there was a CD that came with the Rinsler making of books Mm -hmm. that might have those animatics on it so I don't necessarily know if they're like lost to time but um or like we'll never see that those might be out there and I just don't have access to them but super interesting regardless archives they honestly might even be on YouTube But yeah, they are in the Lucasfilm archives for sure. Okay. So moving on to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Caitlin and I love Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I love it. We – it was the first Indiana Jones movie I ever saw in the movie theater. And I look back on it and I remember being so excited because George and Steven were going to make another movie together. And Indiana Jones 4, it was going to be the best. It was going to be so great. 
and critics did not love it, but guess what? We We did. (laughs) And (laughs) it was, I mentioned before that George and Steven originally made a deal with Paramount for five Indiana Jones movies. Um, And I have to imagine that there was some sort of tension between George being pretty adamant that this movie was going to be like a B movie that included alien elements. And Steven was in his like serious movie era um, and that he was wanting to be seen as a quote mature filmmaker. A lot was thought about the setting of the movie and the time period. And I think it's quite interesting based off of the mature filmmaker thing, because there's actually a lot out there about how, Stephen really felt like – I'll back up a little bit. George wanted to go back to a Nazi storyline where the Nazis were involved and do something in South America about the Nazis uh, during the trials who, like, went to go live there uh, and in hiding, right? And Stephen was like, I cannot do a farce of Nazis after making Schindler's List. And I just I have to imagine that there was some tension there because then they shifted it to the Cold War, to Russians, to where we are with Kingdom of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. So I think this all goes back to that like initial tension that I was really like seriously wanting to get into about the studio of it all, the studio system and um, Stephen's critical success and things like that. I think it did flourish a little bit in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but Eventually, I think Stephen has is very much like on on paper, very was very excited about the direction that the story went in and how they and Steve and George was very much like we gotta play everything about this straight, just like we do in every Indiana Jones movie. Mm-hmm. That there's a supernatural element, but you gotta play it straight and the audience will believe it. Yeah. And Yeah. So, and again, I think that George is older here and I think he has more under his belt in terms of his vision and he had just come in off the prequels, right? Which were all his entirely his vision. So I think working with other, like other uh, filmmakers again was probably an interesting experience for him and how clear of his vision and, and just thinking about how adamant he was about his own vision and like what had to be scaled back and changed. Well, and the 2000s are just not kind to George Lucas. You know, you say finishing up the prequels with his vision, which is true, but along with that came a lot of criticism, a lot of jokes, a lot of mean things kind of constantly being said about George Lucas. And not only that, but the Clone Wars movie is going to come out three months after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So Kingdom of the Crystal Skull will not be received that well. The Clone Wars movie will also not be received that well. It just it's kind of like, oh, like hit after hit. You know what I mean? The articles around this time are fascinating. They're, you get too much. you get like they're too much. You get you get the New York Times interviewing Dave Filoni for a little blurb about like how he's going to be the next big thing for the next Star Wars and how George was self funding the Clone Wars all by himself, but he didn't even have a network or a buyer. He was just making it making making seasons without a place for them to go. <laughs> but it's always and, from this perspective of like, that's because everyone hated the the prequels. You know, like yes. he has to do it this yes. way. It's like, no. No. <laughs> no. He would have done it that way anyway. The snide writing is just out of control. And when you spend some time reading the articles around Star Wars and George Lucas and Indiana Jones around this time period, 
it will, if you are anything like us, it will make your blood boil because you're like, you don't even know. You're like here criticizing what the Clone Wars is and little do you know what it will be today, aka like basically the bedrock for so many new Star Wars projects. (laughs) So, (laughs) K. Yeah, I think this is such like, this is our era, right? 2008 is, this is the beginning of our time. (laughs) Yes. So so much like everything about you and I's fandom is is being um, what's the word like in the crucible here. It's being fired. Mm -hmm. It's being melded together. And I I just I find it so fascinating to think about people becoming fans now who kind of have no day to day press about George Lucas or uh, Internet press the way that we did i'm not explaining this well but like about the internet community and culture that was around star wars and the prequels and and everything that was kind of happening in this 2005 to 2008 you know before the the clone wars comes out because what it was 2006 2007 when i saw star wars for the first time 2006 uh so kingdom of the crystal skull is the first thing that is at all related to george lucas slash star wars slash lucasfilm and it's so exciting how could you and I not be in love with it? You know what I mean? And then totally. Clone Wars comes out and it just, but it's all in this realm of George Lucas has lost his touch. Star Wars was good, but nothing else after it has like just, Oh God, so annoying. <laughs> and to think now, 2015, 20 years later, none of that matters because Star Wars continues to stand the test of time. And George Lucas as a creator, all of the things that he was doing in The Phantom Menace are directly related to the way that Star Wars and film is being made today. And he's always kept that vision. And it's just one of the things, we talk about it all the time, but it's just one of the reasons that I admire him as a filmmaker and as just like a creative person. Me too, me too. All right, so talking about George Lucas as a creative person, I think it's time we delve into kind of this other piece of their collaboration, which is super interesting and something I think you and I kind of knew a little bit about on the surface level, but I didn't realize how deep this went. And this was their relationship to art, George and Steven's relationship to art and specifically to the American artist Norman Rockwell. And George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have a deep long-standing love of Norman Rockwell, and they are both huge collectors of Norman Rockwell art. I know who Norman Rockwell is. Can't say I knew much about him other than what it took to pass an art history test. (laughs) Really? Wow. I'm surprised by that. That I didn't know much about him? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I, I, I feel like I like sprung into being as an American knowing about Norman Rockwell. I mean, I know who he is and like, have a familiarity with his work or and like his style and stuff like that, but he wasn't ever anyone that I studied. Also remembering that everything I did in college was like the ancient world. So I took like one (laughs) class from each era that I had to, (laughs) and then went back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. (laughs) So George and Stephen are huge collectors of Norman Rockwell. In fact, George talks about, you know, one of the first, one of the first like big purchases or things that he started buying with money from American Graffiti and Star Wars was original art from Norman Rockwell. 
and George and Stephen actually both have such a large collection of his work that they sponsored an exhibit with Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. in 2009-2010 that ran from 2009 to 2010, um, focusing on Norman Rockwell and loaned a lot of their personal collection to this exhibit. I think it was about 50 to 60 works, um, and it was all about really focusing on how this artist, Norman Rockwell, inspired them as filmmakers because Norman Rockwell's work is so, it's so story driven. And I found this really interesting. It's a podcast basically from that time period uh, with, with George Stephen and the curator of this exhibit at the Smithsonian. I believe her name was Virginia. I didn't write it down though. Uh, And it's basically them talking about different pieces in their collection and how they feel inspired by Norman Rockwell and that he was able to contain basically a story within a single image and that the the people in his paintings and in his work were so full of life and had a story within them. And you could kind of tell all of that just by looking at this single image and that kind of essence and that feeling of what Norman Rockwell imbued into his work is what they wanted to imbue into their own work. And it's a really fascinating uh, kind of episode slash lecture it all it it's kind of weird because I don't think they were together. It's like you have the curator kind of introducing works and then you kind of have these clips of George and Steven talking about it. It kind of feels like they were interviewed separately and then they put this together, this like little podcast episode. It's 40 minutes. It's really interesting. Highly recommend. And there's even like a cool exhibit um, book that was written about it, about the exhibit that I really want to buy actually, because <laughs> I think it looks, it looks really cool. You should. I know I should. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going to, I probably will. So, <laughs> but the, there's a lot actually in there about their relationship to Norman Rockwell and this collection that the two of them have it kind of forms the basis of the George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Um, I couldn't find definitively if Steven's, any of Steven Spielberg's collection is in the museum. I think it is, but I couldn't find that definitively. But George Lucas's collection is absolutely a part of the foundation of the George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. And Steven Spielberg is on the board of directors for that museum as well. So That's not open. You should say that yet. It's, it's not, not open. open yet. So we don't know what's actually going to be fully included in terms of Stevens, right? I just want to make that clear. Yeah, the museum opens in 2025. It was supposed to open in 2021. They've been acquiring stuff and holding events, honestly, for a number of years now um, and did throughout the pandemic. So we know some of what's in their collection already, uh, but not all of it. And I feel like I had read an article at some point that talked about their Norman Rockwell collections being a part of the museum, but I couldn't find it again. So take that as you will. But I know that part of George's Norman Rockwell collection is in the museum. And as well, the museum has recently acquired a new Norman Rockwell piece for like $20 million not too long ago. And it like went to auction and no one knew who the who bought it. And it turned out to be the George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. And they actually have it on loan with the Norman Rockwell Museum in Massachusetts until the George Lucas Museum opens in 2025. And George Lucas also made like a $1.5 million donation to the Norman Rockwell Museum in like 2018 or something like that. That apparently was like really transformative for the museum or important to their like, I forget what it's called, but they're like museum dowry, essentially. Um, Endowment. Endowment. Thank you. 
dowry. Um, yeah, so I just think that this this shared love of Norman Rockwell is a really fascinating part of their relationship because the way that they talk about it, it's like they both respected this artist and have um, nostalgic memories about seeing his artwork from a very young age to the point that they both started collecting it in the late 60s and late 70s when they were financially able to. There's also this article that talks about their relationship to Norman Rockwell like around 20. 16, I think. And there's this really meta quote about their collections, at least I think it's very meta, where it says that Spielberg's collection consists mostly of Rockwell's completed paintings, while Lucas's consists largely of sketches, perhaps a reflection of his belief that no piece of art is ever really finished. And then in some cases, George Lucas owns the sketch of a painting and Steven Spielberg owns the completed piece, which just feels so incredibly meta to me. <laughs> it's so meta. I just and can't it's get also, over it. It's so, it's so meta just based off the fact that Norman Rockwell in a lot of ways is seen as one of the, the foremost American painters mm-hmm. of the 20th century. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm sure that Stephen and George, I think you've talked about this, that they draw a lot of um, inspiration from his work and are just really struck by it. But in in a lot of ways, like both all of these people that we're talking about are American artists. And I think that particularly with the Americana sense that you get when you look at any of Rockwell's paintings, you can feel that in some of George's movies and also in Stephen's movies as well. I I think that uh, in a lot, I think there's even some recreated shots of Rockwell paintings in both movies that are just not coming to me right now, but there's it's so they had someone play implicit. Norman Rockwell in the young Indiana Jones. Yes, that yeah. too. Yes, yeah. totally. And there's just a lot of um, carryover and inspiration. And so I think a lot of this makes a, makes sense. I wish that I saw the exhibit. We got to buy that book, Caitlin. Yeah, I'm like, I really, it's it's like 50 or $60 on Amazon right now. Worth it. It is. I think, I actually think you, you mentioned the Fablemans earlier in the episode, mm-hmm. Stephen's semi mostly autobiographical film. And I think if you listen to this podcast and it, it's visual, so it's like a little power point that they show with it and you see all of the images that Steven Spielberg specifically is collecting of Norman Rockwell it's so tied to his childhood and like who he was like Norman Rockwell did a lot of like Boy Scout art and Mm -hmm. that's part of one of the things Steven loves to collect is specifically Mm -hmm. that Boy Scout art uh, or paintings that Norman Rockwell did with Boy Scouts and similar kind of themes like you were talking about with that Americana vibe and that tracks right along And, and even there's a piece that um, Stephen talks about. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's, I think it's called The Diving Board. And it's basically this little yep, kid looking over, looking over the, diving board. the edge of the diving board and is scared to jump off the diving board. And Stephen talks about his relationship to that painting and how for him it represented his fear of making Schindler's List. And mm-hmm. how he felt like he had been looking over the edge of the diving board the creation of Schindler's List for 10 years until he finally took the plunge and made the film. And I I think that that painting is hanging in his office, which also feels like it relates to things happening in the Fablemans too. And I don't know, it was mm-hmm. just, it was, it was really great to see the types of things that they collect. There's an emphasis on like audience and viewing a scene that someone else in the painting is watching. Um, and a lot of it too is like children and imagination and 
this idea of something um, coming to life before your very eyes is a big part of the pieces that they both collect. And it, I, this kind of like this understanding of just how deep their relationship, I had no idea about this exhibit until we started researching for this episode. It just kind of tied a lot of things together for me when it came to the two of them. Mm-hmm. The concept of participatory art, I think, is mm-hmm. something that Stephen and George are maybe inadvertently involved in, right? Like, I don't know if George makes, I don't know, it's a kind of a philosophical conversation, but I can see how that could relate, how they could relate to that sort of art form in a lot of ways. Got my got my brain turning. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, I'm I'm going to buy the book after we hang up. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah, the George Lucas Museum narrative, narrative art. I'm so excited. We're going opening day. We got, I, I don't even care. I was looking at the press releases from when they broke ground. This museum was actually supposed to open in 2021, but got delayed, obviously, um, and is now slated to open in 2025. And I am just so excited. It's going to have anything and everything in it. And I can't wait. Um if you don't know anything about it, you should definitely look into it. It looks incredible. Um, but it's about popular art. And George had this quote from the day of the groundbreaking ceremony where he said, to my feeling, popular art is an insight into society, into a society and what they aspire to, what they really want, what they really are. And the whole concept is that popular art should be analyzed and studied and appreciated at the same level as art as an art with a capital A versus art with a lowercase a, if that makes any sense. And that his museum wants to celebrate that. So it is, of course, going to have a lot of things from film history, but then also from like all genres, essentially, and to view them in conjunction and in conversation with one another. I'm just so excited for it. And I think just to bring it back to Steven Spielberg as well. I I feel like Steven, while he has gone through a lot of different phases as a filmmaker, makes art for all people. Yeah. And I think that is perhaps their biggest common ground and why they are such great collaborators together. Yeah. And I'm sure Steven Spielberg will be there opening day. I'm sure. I, I would bet money on it. Oh, yeah. He was sure. he was there at the groundbreaking, groundbreaking oh, I didn't know ceremony. That. Yes. He's on the board of directors. Uh, he's he's going to be there. I, I feel like part of his, his art his collection is in there. there. I, I'm yeah. sure it's in there, even though I couldn't find something telling me that. But I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure they're like waiting for the specifics of it before they do like a press release around it. But yeah, yeah. I'm sure of it, too. I there was this huge this piece that um, George Lucas bought not too long ago too for his private collection I think of Norman Rockwell's it was forty six million dollars. Cool, <laughs> great. <So casual. laughs> well, it's crazy. It's crazy. And the thing is, is like I actually don't think George Lucas. I don't know. Maybe I don't. I don't know anything about billionaires, but. I don't know if George would agree that it should cost that much money, right? Like, No, but I think to George's point is that – and they were talking – these are different pieces, right? I said there's one that is on display at the Norman Rockwell Museum that was bought by the George Lucas Museum. Mm-hmm. And then there's a piece that George Lucas bought for $46 million. These are different pieces. Um, but I think one of the things they were talking about with the one that is now in Massachusetts is that – it was bought with the intent that it would be on view for the public. And I think that is really important to George. And I think part of why 
he wanted to open this museum. I kind of wonder how much yes. this Smithsonian exhibit really started the wheels turning. That was in 2009, 2010. Um they broke ground for uh, the George Lucas Museum in 2018. We know that there were talks about the museum like years before that. So, you know, I just, I wonder how early he was thinking about this. I also, one thing that you and I were talking about that I always kind of forget is that George Lucas was a huge proponent for free internet and still is free internet in schools and libraries and has testified in front of Congress multiple times about this and about children having access to fast and reliable internet um, Mm -hmm. and has, I think, made donations to that end and spoken in front of Congress to like the telecommunications subcommittee or something crazy like that. I was reading his speech about it, the most recent speech he did, which I think was in like 2006 or something. And it was about increasing like broadband and bandwidth for schools uh, so that it was consistent no matter where you were, because that was important um, for kids. And he made this whole thing about how he doesn't want to make educational movies. He wants kids to make their own content and their own films about the world and how they see things. And I think that for him having a space like the George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art to show popular culture and how it has existed and changed over time is like part of that education, part of wanting to be an inspiration to the next generation of filmmakers. Definitely. De- absolutely. Absolutely. I really cannot wait. Me too. Okay. Shifting gears a little bit, Indiana Jones 5, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny comes out at the end of June. Do we think Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together will make an appearance at the Hollywood premiere? What do we think? It feels like they have to, right? They have to. They have to. I had. There's a lot of rumors about like George Lucas. What does he think about Indiana Jones 5? Who knows? Everything's like unsubstantiated. So I'm not going to even bring that into the podcast. But I think um, he'll be there. Yeah. And I just I wonder if he saw the dailies. Uh, Steven's a producer. George is on the record, not a producer. So we're, I, I think I'll be there too. I think but. he's definitely, he's definitely seen like there is no way that Steven just casually makes this whole executive produces this whole movie, and is not sending and is and is very proud of it. Like really likes it. It's not Steven yeah. didn't make the movie. James Mangold did, but. It's it's interesting. I wonder how they feel, and I wonder if we'll ever get a quote about how. No, we won't. <laughs> we won't about how it feels to like like Indiana Jones was a collaboration between George and Steven, and this is the first movie that George is not like present on, right? And that's not because George didn't want to, right? This is just the way that it went. Yeah. So I just I'm curious to see like what is going to come out about that piece. I all I say all this, but I know Stephen is just going to say like wonderful things about George Lucas at any press opportunity he can possibly get. So um, I'm, I'm sure we'll get more great quotes about how, about their best friendship, but I, I just wonder if he's going to be there. I, I just wonder. I have to, yeah, I do too. I do too. I'm so excited for the movie. I think it's going to be amazing. And I cannot wait to see Indiana Jones in the movie theater again. The point of bringing in the museum stuff, I think, is to think about the future collaborations that potentially George and Steven could have. Like, I think that 
that's that's everlasting in a lot of ways, right? With the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I just I wonder what's next for them. Who knows? And I also like I want to know what what did what did George think of the Fablemans? That was such a personal movie for Stephen that took him like 25 years to make, and he didn't want to make it until his parents died. And once his parents died, like he literally went into he went for it like really almost quickly after that. And I I just I wonder what George thought about it. And if I think about that quote about how Steven sends George every script that he gets, you know, and does 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 he still do that? And did he do that for the Feeblemans? And I have so many thoughts and I don't think we'll ever get any answers to that, but maybe we will. Every nugget of little info I I sort of eat up. Yeah, I do too. I, I'm excited to see what comes next for the two of them, if if anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah, they can also just retire and just enjoy just, themselves. They can just relax. Whatever. They can go build as yeah. many sandcastles as they want. Oh my God. But so there's, true. there's no Without, pressure on the sandcastle. There's no pressure. They can just be a sandcastle, ephemeral, and yet still so beautiful. Uh-huh. <laughs> so true. I think we should end by reading the quote that we read at the beginning. Okay. Stephen to George says, my valiant colleague, a great friend, and a gr- my valiant colleague, a great and loyal friend. And George says about Stephen, my partner, my pal, my inspiration, my challenger. A perfect ending. And a perfect ending. Happy National Best Friends Day to you, happy. my best friend. Oh, I'm sweet. so excited. We got to talk about this on Best Friends Day as best friends. And I can't wait. To see you again very soon. Do you think that Stephen and George have any best friend memorabilia together? What, like, like a bracelet? personalized photograph? No, I was going to say like no. <laughs> no, I actually don't. I think that they've, I, I really don't think they do. I just think they have like cute photos. There are so many photos of them together yeah. that are like cutesy. So I think that's what, I think that's their memorabilia. Charlotte and I used to have matching friendship bracelets. We did. And I want I want George and Steven to copy us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or rather, we copy George and Steven. I have to say there I think their memorabilia, Caitlin, is freaking Raiders of the Lost Ark. Which <laughs> is the entire film That's... is a piece of memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Every time they get That's a check, they're like, Thanks, Steven. Thanks, George. Yeah, and Steven's gathering checks from Star Wars, maybe even still today. I don't know how that works. I'm sure he is. But yeah, I mean, that's their that is do you think Steven got 2.5% of the sale? <laughs> that's how it just came to me. Is that how that works? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Need a lawyer. <laughs> that no is, idea. That's super fascinating to think about. Anyway, um, thank you guys so much for joining us on this BFFs episode between two BFFs about more famous BFFs, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. We had such a fun time doing it and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. So thank you so much for joining us and we will be back very soon with a brand new episode. And also I just got to say, if you've been around Sky Talkers, you know that we have an annual summer series that we do. Charlotte kind of alluded to a series we did on George Lucas, a summer series we did on George Lucas a couple years ago as well as an, a one on animation too that we did. And we didn't do one last year because of schedule conflicts, but we do have a summer series coming this year. We have started planning. We had like a four-hour brainstorm earlier this week about it. That will be coming 
by the end of the summer and we're very excited for it. So please look forward to that. Also submit your guesses as to what you think it's about, what the topic is this year, because uh, we love seeing that too. But that is going to wrap up this week's episode about George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Thank you guys so much as always for listening. If you want to talk more about this duo or any other best friends, or anything else related to Star Wars slash Lucasfilm, please find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Clarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok, Instagram, all great places to find us. If you have a moment and can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love it if you took a couple of seconds to go and do that. And if you're listening to this episode in real time and you want to screenshot tag us on your social media platform of choice that you're listening. We would love to repost, retweet, reshare that as it helps other people um, know that you love listening to the show and sharing it with others. So we would love to see those come in too. They make us so happy. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, GMO, Lindsay, Kat, Jake, Brooke, David, Eugene, Jake, Cassie, Gary, Joe, Pamela, Chris, Poncho's mom, Olivia, Simon, Jenny, Jessica, Jonah, Triumphant Ewok, Allie, Maximilian, Becky, Natalie, and Charlotte. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.